On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. At early dawn on the first day of the week, some of the women who had followed Jesus came to the tomb where his body was laid and, of course, they found it empty. And while they were perplexed about this, two angels appeared to them and said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. They were totally unaware that that sometime in the early hours of that first Easter Sunday, in one explosive moment, death could no longer hold Christ. God raised him from the dead, and, and he came bursting forth from the grave, so that the humiliated, crucified Christ became the risen, glorified, and exalted Christ. You see, what we're celebrating today is is not simply a religious event. We're celebrating the magnificent truth and the most glorious fact of history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, aren't you thankful this morning for the resurrection of Christ? You know, aren't you thankful to know that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in our lives today? I mean, we have so much to be thankful for. I mean, we worship, love, and serve a risen, living Savior. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. But not everyone believes the resurrection is true. In a PBS documentary, a pastor was asked, Do you believe Jesus was raised from the dead? And he responded, The purpose and the personality And the power that was in Jesus continues so that today he is a risen and living presence and possibility. In other words, he was saying the purpose of Jesus lives on, but Jesus is still physically dead. Thomas Jefferson, as as most of you may be aware, Thomas Jefferson took all of the moral teachings of Jesus out of the first three Gospels and put them in a book And he titled the book, The Life and Moral Teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. And the book ends with these words. And they laid him in the tomb and departed. And that's how his book ends. But that's not how the story ends in God's book, right? Now, there are those who say the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most wicked, heartless hoax ever thrust upon the minds of men. But I'm here to tell you this morning the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a hoax. It is not just wishful thinking. It's not a religious myth. Rather, it is a glorious, undeniable, historical fact. And when you understand the significance of the resurrection of Christ, you realize that it is the single most important event in the history of mankind. In fact, it changed the course of history from B.C. before Christ to A.D., the Latin Anno Domini, or the year of our Lord. I mean, we cannot overemphasize the importance of the resurrection. And let me tell you why. 
The resurrection of Christ is not just a feature of Christianity. It is essential truth. In fact, you could say the resurrection is everything. It's the cornerstone of the gospel. Everything in Christianity hinges on the resurrection. Without the resurrection, the moral truths, the ministry, the miracles of Jesus are all worthless. Without the resurrection, the the cross is meaningless. Jesus' crucifixion and death would have been just another death. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity and there is no gospel. In other words, without it, there is no hope. I mean, the truth of the resurrection gives life to every other part of the gospel. And so the resurrection always has been, always will be the foundation of our faith. And of course, that is why throughout history, the resurrection has been attacked and assaulted, even down to the present day. And it will continue to be attacked and assaulted until Christ returns. And that's why volumes of books have been written to prove the resurrection. And certainly at this time of year, the the question arises, how can we prove the resurrection? If it's so vitally essential to Christianity, which it is, how do we prove it? You know, what proves Jesus really rose from the dead? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11, Paul offers several proofs for the resurrection. In that passage, Paul says the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is proved by those who are saved, by the scriptures, by the common message every true apostle, prophet, and pastor preaches, and by eyewitnesses. I mean, the resurrection is the best authenticated event in ancient history because of the massive evidence of eyewitnesses. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to many people, first to Mary Magdalene, and then to the other women, to two people on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to Peter, to James, and all the apostles, and he appeared to them on more than one occasion. And he also appeared to 500 people at one time, most of whom were still alive at the time that Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. So how's that for evidence? I mean, how's that for proof? 500 eyewitnesses. I mean, every uh, prosecuting attorney would love to have 500 eyewitnesses. And so the answer to the question, how do we prove the resurrection, is very simple. The Bible. The pages of Scripture contain ample, convincing evidence. The Word of God proves the resurrection beyond a shadow of a doubt, and and we accept it by faith, faith in God and faith in His Word. We believe the Bible is true. And in no uncertain terms, the Bible says Jesus rose from the dead, and that settles the issue, period. And besides that, an empty tomb and 500 eyewitnesses are pretty hard to argue with. Right? The proof of the resurrection is overwhelming. In fact, only obstinate, uh, willful unbelief would ask for more proof. The Word of God proves the resurrection. But here's another question for us. What does the resurrection mean? What does the resurrection prove? What did it accomplish? And what what does it prove? Well, it proves everything that needs to be proved, everything that's essential in Christianity. And this morning, I want to take a few moments to look at, at this, you know, what the resurrection proves. First of all, the resurrection proves the veracity or the, the truthfulness of God's Word. The Bible declares that it is the Word of God. But is that claim justified? 
Well, the greatest proof that the Bible is God's word is the resurrection. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're not familiar with the Bible, 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament, so go to the New Testament and go turn, Matthew's the first book, go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians, and then go to the end, end of the book, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, next to the last chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, this is what we read. Paul is writing, and he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now when Paul says, I delivered to you, it, it, it does not mean that he brought them something of his own making, his, his own message. Rather, it means that he only delivered what God had said in his word. So I deliver to you as of first importance. In other words, he's saying this, this is the principal thing. You know, of primary importance is what I also receive. In other words, this is what God gave me. I received this from the Lord. And what is of primary importance that Paul received and delivered? Well, in these verses we have the three elements of the gospel, don't we? Christ died, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance or according to the Scriptures. The Scriptures, the Word of God said that Christ would rise from the dead. You say, well, which Scriptures? Well, Old Testament Scriptures like Isaiah 53.10, for one. That verse says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So after, uh, and, and of course Isaiah is speaking about the suffering servant, the Messiah. And after making his soul an offering for guilt, for, for him to see his offspring, that means the servant or the Messiah must rise from the dead. And he will do this and, and live to reign forever. In their preaching. Both Peter and Paul refer to Psalm 16.10, which is a prophecy about God's raising of Christ, written by David. Psalm 16.10 says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter quoted from Psalm 16 and then commented that David, the author of the psalm, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. That's Acts chapter 2, verse 31. So Psalm 16 foretells or prophesies the resurrection of the Messiah from the dead. And when the Word of God predicts an event like the resurrection of Christ, if it doesn't come to pass, then the Word of God is not true. It's invalid. And so the truthfulness of God's word hangs upon the resurrection of Christ. In Acts chapter 13, Paul is preaching in the synagogue at Antioch of Pisidia. And speaking of Jesus, he said this, But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news of what God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. 
And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And that is a reference to Isaiah 55, 3. Now how can God give Jesus the throne of David or or the kingdom if he's dead? Well, the answer is he can't, right? And this means that the promise of Isaiah 55.3 to give him the sure blessings of David is also a promise of resurrection. And continuing in that passage in Acts 13, Paul said this, Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. That's Psalm 16. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Jesus' body did not see corruption because he didn't remain dead because he was raised on the third day. And when speaking before King Agrippa in Acts 26, Paul spoke about the resurrection of Jesus and that Moses and the prophets said this was going to take place. Using the Old Testament illustration of the prophet Jonah, Jesus himself spoke of his resurrection occurring after three days. He said in Matthew 12, 39 and 40, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. To the two people on the road to Emmaus, Jesus said, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus explained his death and resurrection in every manner possible through the Old Testament where it was prophesied. And so we see that Jesus, Peter, and Paul quoted or referred to Old Testament passages like Psalm 16, Psalm 2, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and Isaiah 55, which predicted the death and resurrection of the Messiah. I mean, over and over and over, the Old Testament either directly or indirectly, literally or in figures of speech foretold of Jesus' resurrection. And so no Jewish person who was familiar at all with the Old Testament should have been surprised that the Messiah was to suffer and die, be buried, and then rise again. And not only was it prophesied in the Old Testament, it was prophesied in the New Testament as well. Jesus himself taught the truth of the resurrection, Mark 8.31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Speaking of his bodily resurrection, Jesus said in John chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But then John tells us, Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament predicted the resurrection of Jesus. And his resurrection took place just as the scriptures said that it would. And the Bible is the final court of appeal. It is the final authority. 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact of history, and no one has ever been able to disprove it, because if they could, they would have done so a long time ago. When Jesus rose on the third day, according to the scriptures, it proved the truthfulness of God's word. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then the scriptures are not true. And if the scriptures are not true, then we can't believe them. And if we cannot believe them, then there is no hope. We have no sure word from God. And as Paul said, our faith is in vain. But the word of God is true, isn't it? And we can trust it. And of all the things that the word of God has predicted, Christ's resurrection proves its truthfulness. And we would also have to say, before we move on to our next point, that the resurrection is proof of the divine inspiration of Scripture. Like other important prophecies which have already been fulfilled, the resurrection of Christ is another confirmation of the accuracy and the infallibility of the Scriptures, and it is a testimony to its inspiration by the Holy Spirit. Because the the resurrection of Christ fulfilled many prophecies, both in the Old and New Testament. As one man wrote, it is inevitable that anyone who denies the resurrection also denies the inspiration of Scripture. Usually, it is also true that those who deny the inspiration of Scripture deny the bodily resurrection of Christ. The two are linked, as there are many of, as are many other essential doctrines of biblical truth. And so all of that to say the resurrection of Christ proves the truthfulness of God's Word and the inspiration of of God's word and Jesus' own words. So the resurrection proves uh, the truthfulness of God's word. Secondly, the resurrection proves the deity of Christ. In fact, there's no greater proof of the divine nature of Jesus than his rising from the grave. And I say that because there are numerous places in Scripture where Jesus is declared to be the Son of God. In Mark chapter 1, a demon said to Jesus, I know who you are the Holy One of God. In Mark chapter 5, the demons say, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. And so even the demons affirm His deity. The apostles Peter, James, and John all acknowledge the deity of Christ. Thomas said, My Lord and my God. Nathaniel, you are the Son of God. Matthew, He is God with us. In the Gospel of Mark, we read, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In Luke, He is the Son of God. Martha said, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. John the Baptist, our Lord's cousin, said, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Even the Roman centurion overseeing Christ's crucifixion declared, Truly, this man was the Son of God. But the greatest testimony to the fact of his deity came from the Father in heaven who said, This is my beloved Son. And Jesus also declared himself to be the Son of God. He said, I and the Father are one, thereby claiming to be equal with God. He also declared under oath that he came from heaven and would return from heaven. In Matthew 26, verses 63 and 64, we read, The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. I mean, throughout his life, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, which was why the religious leaders conspired to kill him. 
But the resurrection of Christ was necessary to prove that Jesus was, in fact, who he claimed to be. And so if there was no resurrection, if Christ did not rise from the dead, that he was not the Son of God, but rather he was an imposter, a a lunatic, because only a crazy person would make the claims that he made. You see, there are only three options. Number one, either Jesus was delusional, crazy, and belonged in an institution, or number two, if he wasn't delusional and knew that he would not rise from the dead, but told people that to deceive them, that he was a liar and a deceiver which would mean he was not a prophet, a good moral teacher, or a good example. I mean, we just need to get rid of that idea because Jesus didn't leave us that option. As C.S. Lewis said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would be a lunatic on the level of a man who said he was a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. I mean, if Christ is not risen, then loved ones, he's certainly... Uh, He is certainly not the Son of God, and he certainly was not a good moral teacher. If Christ is not risen, he is not God, but a deceiver and a liar, and all that he said was not true. When you see the serious implications of the resurrection, the third option that we have is that Jesus is precisely who he claimed to be, And he did, in fact, rise from the dead. And so either he was a lunatic, a liar, or he is the Lord. He is the Lord. He is Lord. He is risen, and he is victorious. The resurrection is God's proof that the Lord Jesus is who he claimed to be, the very Son of God. In Acts 17, verse 31, Paul is writing and he says, He, God, has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I mean, Paul shows that the resurrection is the final and convincing proof that Jesus is the Son of God. Turn over to Romans chapter 1 real quick. Romans chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and in verses 3 and 4, Paul says that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul says Jesus is declared to be the Son of God in power. In other words, his being the divine, eternal Son of God is declared in a very powerful way. When God declared the sonship of Jesus, he didn't do so by by dropping subtle hints here and there or by offering cryptic suggestions that only the most brilliant theologians could, could perhaps figure out. No, the evidence that God gave to confirm the claim of Jesus to be the Son of God is the resurrection. When God raised Christ from the dead, it was a clear and powerful affirmation that what he said was true. And the key to understanding this verse in Romans is the word declared. 
He was declared to be the Son of God. This word declared comes from a Greek word that means boundary. And we get our English word horizon from it. And it it refers to the clear demarcation line between the earth and the sky. And what Paul is saying there, uh, he's saying that if if there was ever any question about whether Jesus was the Son of God, by his resurrection, the line was drawn in absolute clarity. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. And as clearly as the horizon divides the earth from the sky, so the resurrection divides Jesus from the rest of humanity. And when God raised him from the dead, Jesus was irrefutably distinguished from all other human beings. I mean, if you'll notice again verse 4 there in Romans chapter 1, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And the NIV is perhaps a little clearer there. And it reads, Who through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is qualified by the phrase, according to or through the Spirit of holiness. Just as Jesus descended from David according to the flesh, so also he is declared to be the Son of God according to the Spirit of holiness. And this is not a reference to Jesus' human spirit, but rather to the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead when he brought back the human flesh of Jesus uh, to life to, to prove his claim to be the only begotten Son of God. And Paul's point, is that Jesus' divine nature as the Son of God was made clear by his resurrection from the dead. I mean, he was and is and always will be the Son of God. And Christ's resurrection unmistakably revealed that truth to the world. In his life and ministry, Jesus offered many substantiating evidences of his deity. But the supreme proof of his deity is the solid fact of his resurrection. The resurrection is proof of the deity of Christ. His resurrection proves he was from God and and spoke the truth, that he is in fact the way, the truth, and the life. The resurrection proves Jesus was unique, one of a kind, and, and it marks him out and authenticates him as God's son. We also would have to say the resurrection was the reversal of the verdict passed on Jesus by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court. You remember that the Sanhedrin condemned Jesus as a blasphemer, one who claimed to be the promised Messiah. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, guess what? The verdict of the highest human court was overturned by the highest authority of all. It was a vindication that his words and works were not of satanic origin, but the very works of God himself. As one man said, condemned for blasphemy, he was now declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection. Executed for sedition, for claiming to be a king, God made him both Lord and Christ. Hanged on a tree under the curse of God, he was vindicated as the Savior of sinners, the curse he bore being due to us and not to him. And so the resurrection proves that Jesus Christ was more than just another religious leader, idealist, or philosopher. It dramatically marks him out as the Son of God and authenticates his claims to deity. 
God raised Jesus from the dead, affirming that he too is God and the second member of the Trinity. The resurrection declares his deity. The Bible undeniably proclaims the resurrected Christ to be Lord. And God appointed the resurrected Jesus as Lord and Christ, Prince and Savior, and there is no other. And so the resurrection proves the truthfulness of God's word. It proves the deity of Christ. And thirdly, it proves our justification. In Romans chapter 4, verse 25, Paul said, Christ, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus' literal, physical, bodily resurrection is the only proof we have that God accepted his substitutionary atonement for our sins. That is, it proves that God the Father accepted the sacrifice that Christ made as full payment for all our sins. And that means if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then God did not accept his atoning sacrifice. And that means the believer's faith is worthless, as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 15. And in addition to that, it means that we are still in our sin. Christ's death accomplished nothing for the forgiveness of our sins. And if Christ accomplished nothing to remove the guilt and penalty of our sins, then we are still dead in our sins and will remain sinful and spiritually dead forever. Which means that we are no better off spiritually than unbelievers, for like them, we too will die in our sin which means that we must pay the penalty for our, for our sin, and we know the wages of sin is what? Death. Which means that we will not only die physically, but will also be separated from God for all eternity. If Christ is not risen, it means Christianity has no more to offer than Buddhism, Hinduism, and, and Islam, except perhaps uh, uh, a greater moral code. And so if Christ is not risen, as one man said, our sins and iniquities cling to us still, and hell has triumphed, the cursed remains, and nothing but judgment awaits us. Well, that's a horrible thought, isn't it? That's absolutely horrible. But thank God it's not true. I mean, death was not the end. Christ actually rose from the dead, demonstrating that he is indeed all he claims to be, and that his work has the value set forth in the scriptures, namely a substitutionary atonement for the sins of the world. You see, Jesus' substitutionary atoning death and his resurrection from the dead are twin doctrines that stand or fall together. One man wrote, It seems evident that if Christ died for men in atonement for their sins, it could not be that he should remain permanently in the state of death. That, had it been possible, would have been the frustration of the very purpose of his dying. For if he remained himself a victim of death, how could he redeem others? And of course, the answer is, if he remained dead, he couldn't redeem anyone. And it's significant that those who deny the bodily resurrection of Christ most always deny his substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of the world. But you see, loved ones, the New Testament constantly affirms that the death of Jesus was not merely the death of a martyr for a righteous cause, but rather a sacrifice initiated by God himself to pay the penalty for sin. And in raising Jesus from the dead, God was setting his seal of approval on the work that Christ had done. So you could say that the resurrection is the receipt 
for the payment made for our sin. Jesus suffering on our behalf made our forgiveness possible. But it is the risen Christ who offers that forgiveness to us and guarantees it for us. You see, our salvation is vitally linked to the historical, literal resurrection of Christ from the dead. I mean, every element of salvation is dependent on the resurrection of Christ. I mean, it proves our justification. So by his life and death, Jesus satisfied the justice of the Father. But his resurrection was God's amen to Jesus' cry from the cross, it is finished, referring to the work of atonement. And so now God can be just in justifying all those who believe in Christ. And so the resurrection proves the truthfulness of God's word, the deity of Christ, our justification. And fourthly, it guarantees our ultimate resurrection. The resurrection of Christ from the dead proves that all who by faith have trusted in Christ alone for salvation shall live again. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, Paul said, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep or those who have died, that, that you may not grieve as others, others do who have no hope. So Paul says, look, I don't, I don't want you to be uninformed about Christians who have died. I don't want you to sorrow as the pagans, as, as the unbelievers who have absolutely no hope. Instead, Paul wanted them to understand and experience the glory of the hope they had in Christ for the future. And the foundation of that future hope is the death and resurrection of Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians 4.14, he said, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The resurrection proves that Christ conquered sin and death, not only for himself, but for every Christian. And he became the source of resurrection life for every believer. As one man said, God will treat those who died trusting in Jesus in the same way he treated Jesus himself, namely by resurrecting them. And it's the resurrection that gives us hope beyond this life. I mean, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I mean, because Christ is risen, because he lives, we also shall live. That's not just pie in the sky, that's the truth. I mean, when Christians die, when we as Christians die, our spirits immediately go to be with the Lord in heaven, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Our spirits immediately go to be with Christ. Our bodies go into the grave. But God will raise our bodies from the grave in the same way that he raised Jesus. He will raise our bodies to be joined with our eternal spirits in a resurrected, glorified body like Christ's. And as John said in 1 John 3, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 23, this is what Paul wrote. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has, also, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Now what does he mean? Well, before the Israelites could harvest their crops, they were commanded to bring a sheaf of grain or, 
or, or a basket of fruit, whatever, the, the first of the harvest, and to give it to the priest as an offering to the Lord. And the priest would then wave that before the Lord. The first fruits represented the first of the harvest, and it was a pledge of the full harvest that would follow. And Paul is telling us here that in both of these ways, Christ is the first fruits. In other words, his resurrection represents the first sample of and the guarantee of the entire harvest to follow, or the larger resurrection of all of God's redeemed. And as the first fruits, Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. So just as surely as he rose, so will all of those who belong to him. Christ's resurrection is the pledge and the proof of our own resurrection. Just as sin and death entered the world through Adam and in Adam all die, through Jesus Christ, resurrection and life entered the world for all who will believe in him. And so as one man said, Christ's resurrection precipitates and guarantees that all of the saints who have died will also be resurrected. You remember when the disciples ran into the tomb, it was empty except for the grave clothes. I mean, Jesus' body was gone because he had risen from the dead. And for us as believers, if the Lord tarries, though our bodies will be laid in the grave, one day that grave will be emptied as our bodies are also resurrected from the dead. You see, the foundation of our hope and our future resurrection is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 6, Jesus said four times that he would raise believers from the dead on the last day. But if he didn't rise from the dead, if Jesus is not risen, well then we sure can't trust him to raise us, can we? I mean, Christians down through the centuries have staked their eternal destiny on the reality of Christ's resurrection. They have believed that because Christ lives, we will live also. That, that because he lives, we will live forever. But if he did not rise, neither do we. And we have no hope. If there was no resurrection, then we should just throw our Bibles away and go home now. Because if Jesus didn't live past the grave, then those of us who trust in him can never hope to. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if we've staked all of our hope on that and Christ didn't rise, we are of all people uh, the most pitiable. But he rose. And because he rose, we have the hope, the certainty of eternal life, and nothing can take that hope from us. I mean, that's, that's a glorious truth. The same resurrection power that raised Jesus will also raise our physical bodies from the dead. And we're going to receive a new body like Christ, incorruptible, radiant with glory, uh, radiant with glory, powerful and spiritual. And I tell you, the older I get, the more I look forward to this. And so the resurrection of Christ proves the truthfulness of God's word, the deity of Christ, our justification, the resurrection of all believers, and finally, 
The resurrection proves the certainty of judgment. It proves that there is a judgment day coming. When Jesus came into the world for the first time, he was despised, rejected, hated, maligned, mocked, ridiculed, and murdered. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was humbled and humiliated. Jesus allowed himself to suffer and be treated more terribly than we can ever begin to imagine. They beat and abused him. They spit on him. They scourged him. They they shed the crown of thorns deep into his brow and, and crucified him between two thieves. And as he hung there suspended in horrific indignity, the onlookers, the soldiers, the, the people, the religious leaders watched and mocked and, and insulted him. And then a soldier rammed a spear into his side. That's what happened the first time he came. But the entire time he was here, he warned them that it would not always be that way. That they would not always be judging him, that one day he was going to judge them. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus is going to be the judge of every human being who has ever lived. Every person who has ever lived on the face of the earth will one day stand before the Lord Jesus Christ regarding their eternal destiny. You can bank on it. I mean, turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, there in that section, verses 22 to 29. The section clearly links the resurrection of Jesus with the fact that he is judge. In verse 22, we read, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to who? The Son. So in other words, the Lord Jesus Christ will render the verdict. He is the judge. And if you drop down to John 5, 25, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life, excuse me, in himself. And he has given him authority to, what? Execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so all men will be raised to face Jesus Christ as judge. But that cannot happen if Christ didn't rise from the dead. But the Bible declares that Jesus Christ is God's appointed judge and that God raised him from the dead as proof that he would be the judge of every single man. In Acts chapter 17, in his sermon on Mars Hill, the Apostle Paul said this, and it's one verse we've already looked at, but let me read it. Acts 17, 30 and 31, Paul's preaching and he said, The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Well, who's that? Jesus. 
And of this he, God, has given assurance to all by raising him, by raising Jesus from the dead. Jesus Christ is God's appointed judge. And his resurrection is a guarantee that everyone will face him. The one whom they either worshipped and loved and served and followed, or the one whom they rejected. The resurrection proves the certain inevitable judgment of God. And this is a very sobering truth. Because if you don't come to the cross to take the gracious offer of salvation freely offered to you by the Lord Jesus Christ, then one day you will face him as eternal judge and you will not be rendering the verdict. He will. You won't be rendering the verdict on him. Rather, he'll be rendering the verdict on you, a verdict with infinite and eternal consequences. One commentator said, This resurrection is a combination of power and holiness. Do not think that you can escape it. Holiness will demand to be satisfied, and power will be able to reach you where you are and silence your proud lips forever. Doesn't matter where you are, you won't be able to hide. Because his power will find you, it will reach you. The resurrection of Christ guarantees that every man and woman will be raised to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have never put your faith and trust in him alone for salvation, then I can assure you by the word of God, you will be condemned to an eternal hell. But if you have, if you have put your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation, if you confess with your mouth and, and that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And you will escape that judgment that's coming. But apart from that, there is absolutely no way to escape it. You'll never be able to talk your way out of it. Think of the people in Matthew 7, 21 and 23, some of the most horrifying verses in all of Scripture. They're standing before the Lord, and they said, well, look, I'm just going to paraphrase, look, didn't we prophesy in your name, do many wonders in your name, you know, do this and do that? What do you mean? And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And he doesn't deny for one moment they did all of those things prophesied, did wonders, cast out demons. He doesn't deny that they did those things. He just says, I never knew you. Depart from me. There will be no way of escape. And so if you continue to reject Christ, if a person, if a man or a woman, a, a, a young person, an old person, you continue to reject Christ, and you die in your sins, and don't think for a moment, young people, that you won't die until you're really old. Young people die all the time. It's in the newspapers all the time. Death is no respecter of age. If you continue to reject Christ and die in your sins, you'll face him as your eternal judge. And if you don't know him and love him, 
Again, you will be condemned to an eternal hell without him. Let's never forget that death is not the end of our existence. Those who believe in Jesus will be raised to everlasting life. While those who do not believe in Jesus will be raised to everlasting punishment. This is a reality. This is a reality. You know, some say the resurrection of Christ doesn't make any difference. But the truth is, it makes all the difference in the world, in our lives here and now, and in the hereafter throughout eternity. Because Christ rose, judgment is an absolute certainty. You know, and sometimes people get worked up and say, well, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. That's what the Bible says. Yeah, but if you read the next verse, he didn't condemn them because the world's already condemned. Because they haven't believed. Every unsaved man, woman, boy and girl stands condemned before a holy God. Just waiting for sentence to be passed. Judgment to be executed. And the only hope The only hope is to put your faith and trust in Christ alone. And so in light of the resurrection of Christ from the dead, the the man or woman who continues in sin, you know, just flattering themselves with with the hope that there will be no future day of reckoning and judgment, that person is, is guilty of absolute madness. Madness. Because the Lord Jesus Christ will sit in judgment. And every one of us must and will give an account to him of the deeds done in the body. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves the truthfulness of God's word, the deity of Christ, our justification, the resurrection of all believers, and the certainty of of judgment. It proves that there is a judgment day coming. There's a day coming when Christ is going to make all things right. You know, in John 6, 47, Jesus begins his statement with the phrase, truly, truly, or I tell you the truth, which means listen. Listen, because what I'm saying to you is of great importance. Well, what is the statement he was about to make that is of such great importance? Just this. Whoever believes, whoever believes has eternal life. Eternal life. And this is the word of Jesus. And we have proved that he is true. His word is true. In John 3.36, we read, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so either you must atone for your own sin, which is absolutely impossible, because a life of good works can never atone for one single sin, not one. You will never atone for one sin, much less the mountain range of sin 
that you have accumulated against God. So either you must atone for your own sin, which is impossible, or, or, you trust in the one who atones for you. You trust in Christ alone. And there is no other way to be saved. There is no other way to be saved. When Voltaire, the famous French philosopher and and atheist, lay dying, he said that he would give half of his great wealth to his doctor if only he could prolong his life for six months. I mean, Voltaire had no hope for resurrection. He died an absolutely miserable man. And Jesus Christ will raise him. Only it will be to face judgment. Well, consider another person. The great American evangelist D.L. Moody. As Moody lay dying in 1899, his son heard Moody exclaim, Earth is receding, heaven is opening, and God is calling. And his son asked, Father, are you dreaming? And Moody responded, No, Will, this is no dream. I have been within the gates and have seen children's faces. Moody continued, Is this death? This is not bad. There is no valley. This is bliss. This is glorious. And he died in Christ. And he will be raised to everlasting life. We also will die. And there's no question about that. The odds are one out of one, right? So no question, we also will die. The only question is, how will we die? How will we die? In absolute and utter despair, like Voltaire, Or will we die in living glorious hope like D.O. Moody? We need to consider these things. Because Scripture tells us that, that uh, life is, is like a vapor, you know, just a wisp of smoke that only appears for a very short time and then vanishes away. And it's hard to believe, I mean, in thinking of my own life, how fast life goes by. I remember my oldest son was just an infant. Now he's in his 40s. Like, when did this happen? (laughs) Life is short. Death is sure. Sin the cause. And Christ is the only cure. And so in light of the coming judgment, in light of the fact that life is just a vapor, we're here a short time and then we, we, uh, we die. The only sensible thing, the only sane thing for anyone to do is to deny themselves, take up their cross, follow and serve the Lord Jesus Christ because he's risen from the dead. And listen, I pray that that everyone here will make certain today that when you die, you die in hope by placing your faith and trust in the risen, exalted, and glorified Christ. 
that we don't want you to leave today without knowing our Savior. Listen, I mean, you have all of the world and eternity to gain and absolutely nothing to lose. But if you refuse, if you continue to reject the Lord Jesus Christ, you have everything to lose, and you surely will. And so our plea, my plea, uh, the elders' plea, the, the people that, that attend this church, our plea is that if you're not a believer today, that you would submit yourself, you would turn from your sin, put your faith and trust in Christ alone. He's your only hope. So come to Christ. Call out to Him to save you. To forgive you, to save you. Because the Bible tells us that everyone that calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And of course, a genuine work of the Spirit and regeneration you know, a genuine faith that is going to be evidenced by a person's behavior, their conduct, their, their works. So you look for a changed life as, as the evidence of salvation. So if you've never trusted Christ alone, do so today. I mean, today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. And if you want to know more about what it is to believe in Christ, if you want to know what it is to trust in Him alone for salvation, as John mentioned we have a prayer room right through this door. Open that door and it's right there on the left. And a couple of our elders will be in there and their wives will be there in, in case uh, any of you ladies feel uncomfortable praying with the man. Their wives are there to pray with you as well. If you have questions about what it is to trust Christ or you just need prayer for anything, they'd be glad to, to pray with you, pray for you, and also to answer any questions you have about what it is to trust Christ and give you a Bible and some information to help you. But whatever you do, don't walk out of here today without knowing our Savior. Death is sure. Death is sure. But Christ is King. He conquered death, hell, and the grave for all of those who will trust in Him. So put your faith and trust in Christ on this Easter Sunday. Let's stand and pray. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website, at calvarybiblepc.org calvarybiblepc.org Thank you for listening and may God richly bless you It's your love